Hello, folks. My name's Nolan Ruby, and this is the On Being Christian Podcast. I'll be your host. I'm actually also the pastor of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church here in Salt Lake City, and the On Being Christian Podcast is a ministry of the Wasatch Front Baptist Church, and I'm so happy to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Um, It's been a very busy start to the summer. I actually just got back off of a back-to-back-to-back Uh, three-week trip of three different youth camps. And so I am absolutely exhausted trying to keep up with kids for three different weeks. The the middle week wasn't so bad. I had a bunch of senior guys and they were, uh, they weren't as, as energetic as some of the younger, the younger guys. But anyway, it's been a very busy start to the week and We're excited to get summer started here in Salt Lake City. It's been a beautiful, beautiful start to the summer. The weather's been very cooperative. It hasn't been very hot. So my family and I have spent a lot of time up in the mountains, and um, it's considerably cooler up there even than it is in the valley. But I'd like to share with you today, I I was, as a result of being with all these kids at all these youth camps, I was uh, talking to a young fella, and he brought up the idea of sorrow concerning salvation, specifically concerning repentance, and talked about um, someone had told him once that emotion played a huge part in their salvation, and he was confused as to why he didn't necessarily feel as emotional as he was told this other person felt, and it led me to a verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read 9 through 12, and then we're going to talk about this idea of sorrow, because the Bible breaks down sorrow into two separate camps, and they're laid out very clearly. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 9, I'll read down through verse 12. The Bible says here, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, But that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so there you see, um, as we get started here, our two different types of sorrow that we'll be dealing with. There's godly sorrow, and then there's worldly sorrow. Verse 11 says, For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, in all things ye have approved yourselves, to be clear in this matter, wherefore though I write unto you, I did not for this cause that had done the wrong, nor for this cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. If I keep reading down, it it ends there with this very clear picture of sorrow. Sorrow of the world and sorrow, uh, the Bible calls it godly sorrow. Uh, back up just a little bit, verse 10, godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, 
but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And then verse 11 and 12 lays out the resulting uh, characteristics of godly sorrow. So without getting too far off track, this is what I'd like to talk to you about today, because I think sometimes we give... We give a lot more credence to uh, how people would define their relationship with God, and then we think that because they reacted or didn't react within a certain spectrum, that somehow means that I should react or not react as well in comparison to them. And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible breaks it down with this word that there are two types of sorrow, and that which your sorrow produces will tell you where you are, if you're honest with yourself. Okay, so verse 9, jumping right into it, just by way of introduction, now that we were made sorry, not that we were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner. Sorry here is a word that means to be in distress, to cause grief, or to be in heaviness, and the word sorrowed it means the exact same thing. And then you see the word repentance. It says, they, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. That's the point of sorrow, is that it would drive you to repentance, not that it would drive you to excuses or explanations or emotions or things like that. And the word repentance is a word that means compunction for guilt. It's a reversal of a decision. It's a, it's a reformation. And so when you see this, as we just get started, verse 9, it says, Now I rejoice, and this is Paul writing this letter to the church at Corinth, and he's specifically saying that he's rejoicing because they are sorrowful. Now, I know that sounds a little bit harsh, but the reality is is that if I'm ever going to do business with the Lord, I do need to be brought to a point where I am in heaviness. And so that's what he said in verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry. The fact that we are sorry or in sorrow or in heaviness is not the point that brings joy to a preacher who's preaching the conviction and the doctrine of the Word of God. He says, But that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. And so he breaks these sorrows down. He says, listen, we rejoice that you were brought to a place of sorrow before the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not rejoicing in your sorrow. We're rejoicing in where your sorrow brought you to. And that is repentance. Folks, when we deal with the Lord, the Bible will point things out, the Word of God will point things out in our life that is in contradiction to our natural man. And Paul said that's something to rejoice in. It is a matter of of giving grace and glorification to God when we allow the Bible to change our life. Now sometimes, and if you're a parent, you understand this. There's a huge difference between a child who is sorry because you caught him and the child who's sorry because he did the wrong thing and offended you or broke a law of the home or whatever you'd like to put there. There's a big difference between the spirit and the attitude of that child. 
the one who is sorry for having gotten caught will do the same thing again. He's just going to think about a different way to do it so that maybe this time you don't catch him. The one who's sorry and repents of that which he is sorrowful of will never do it again, whether you're there or not or whether you ever find out, because he's learned a life lesson that this thing, this action, whatever it may be that he has crossed the line of is something that's uh, detrimental to him and to your testimony as his father, as his mother, so on and so forth. And so these are the two different types of sorrow we're talking about. Just to lay the groundwork, I think what we're going to do is we're going to define one as legal repentance, and we're going to find define the other one as, as real repentance. Legal repentance would be what the Bible calls worldly sorrow, which the Bible says leads to death. The end of verse 10 says, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So what is legal repentance? Well, legal repentance would be pain, regret, or affliction, which a person feels on account of past conduct because it exposes them to punishment. This sorrow proceeding merely from punishment or the fear of punishment may exist without any true amendment to life or amendment to the purpose of the mind. So in other words, I'm very sorry, but I'm not sorry for what I did. I'm just sorry that you caught me doing what I did. And if you give me another chance, I'll make sure you won't catch me again. (laughs) That's worldly sorrow. It's legal repentance. I used to work in a prison, folks, and Everyone in there, I've never met so many innocent people in my life than when I worked in a prison. Everyone's innocent. They didn't do it. And when I was in there, you would hear conversations take place between inmates, and a lot of the conversations revolved around how when they got out, they were never coming back here. But it wasn't because that they wouldn't do anything that got them there in the first place again. It was because this time they've figured out the system and they're not going to get caught again. Now, they did, obviously. The recidivism rate of prison is remarkably high. And so a lot of times, I saw folks that would walk out the door and say, I hope I never see you again. I'd see them in two or three weeks. Because it wasn't, the sorrow didn't change their life. It didn't It didn't amend their mind. It didn't change their heart. Their actions were always going to be the same. They just They just manipulated the surroundings so that they could attempt, at least, to try to get away with what they were going to do. That's legal repentance. Legal repentance can be fulfilled with time. The element of time can be attached to someone's actions, and they serve a certain amount of time, and whether or not they've had an amendment to life, they can no longer be held because they've served their term. Now let's talk about the other form of sorrow. This is godly sorrow. We're going to call that real repentance. Sorrow, deep contrition. Contrition is a word for the act of grinding or or rubbing into powder. It it means it's pain, a penance, deep sorrow for sin, grief of heart for having offended an infinitely and holy and benevolent God. Genuine repentance comes with deep and sincere resolutions 
to live by the power and grace of God obediently toward the commandments of God. That's real repentance, sorrow or deep contrition for sin as an offense and dishonor to God, a violation of his holy law, and the basest ingratitude towards the being of infinite benevolence. This is accomplished and followed by an amendment to life. Real repentance or godly sorrow leads to an amendment to life. You're not sorry that you got caught, though that definitely plays a role. You're sorry because of the actions that you have taken, having caused pain and discontent on the heart of that person who you love. When I was a young guy, I was a, I, I'm, I was a tough kid, okay? Um, I don't know that I was always that way, but life kind of took me down a road that <clears throat> made me tougher than average, and the the thought of punishment to me wasn't really that severe of a thing, um, just because it, it just wasn't that severe. You know, I, I could do what I wanted, and you might have some kind of punishment for me to uh, to pay but it really wasn't that big of a deal. One of the things that my mother would tell me that was a big deal to me was when I would do something that I knew I wasn't supposed to do or I would uh, enact something that I thought I could get away with or something. I, w- I, was, I was applying some kind of trade that was wrong. Instead of dropping the hammer or forcing me to fulfill some kind of benign punishment, she would just look at me and say, son, that really hurt my heart. And I tell you what, that right there was enough to kill me. Like I it was she taught what she taught me with that phrase was that it wasn't about just ob, you know subjective laws and rules that somebody laid down and I was gonna keep them for no reason. It was there was a value to the things that she was trying to teach me. There was a value, there was a weight to what she was trying to share with me. And when I went against those values, they were going to hurt me, but they were also going to hurt her, specifically her heart, because she would have to watch me go through things that she knew were coming that I didn't have the maturity to see far enough down the line to see coming. And so that's kind of the idea. We have legal repentance or worldly sorrow. That's the the sorrow that would be generated from being caught, but it doesn't generate any amendment to life. And then you have real repentance or godly sorrow. This is the type of sorrow that you are that, that you go through that leads you to an amendment to life. You're willing to give your you're willing to give control of your life over to the Lord by faith, accepting him as your Lord and Savior, and repenting. And I, I've told folks, you're not repenting like a, it's not like a Catholic ideology where I go through and have to remember every single sin I've ever committed and verbalize it and ask for forgiveness. What am I repenting of? I'm repenting, folks, of me. I'm repenting of my will, my desire. I'm telling the Lord, you promised to give me life. By faith, I accept that, but I also attach to that, and it's commanded in Scripture, I, by faith, 
repent. The Bible says that uh, it's repentance that leads to being converted. Belief isn't enough. This is a, an interesting section of Scripture, but the Bible says all throughout the Bible that people believed in Jesus Christ. They were very willing to believe who he was. It wasn't the belief that was the issue. It was the confession. They weren't willing to confess because confession would put them in the crosshairs of the Jewish culture at the time, which would cause them to be cast out of the temple or cast out of the synagogue or banished. And so they loved the praises of men more than the praises of God. And though they believed in God, they believed in Jesus Christ. They wouldn't confess. So they had worldly sorrow, but not godly sorrow. Verse 10 says, For godly sorrow worketh repentance. So I understand that deep contrition, uh, the, the, the understanding of the, the fact that I have uh, offended an infinite, benevolent God, deep contrition, it's, it's for godly sorrow worketh repentance. To salvation not to be repentant of. In other words, once I accept the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, that's it. The Bible says, can any man pluck him out of my Father's hand? I and my Father are one. Once I've accepted Christ, Christ is in me. I can't send him out of it. I can't um, be so bad that he leaves. Now, I, I can grieve the Holy Spirit through horrible action, the Bible says. But once I've accepted Christ, I am saved and saved forever. It's repentance not to be repented of. That's what godly sorrow produces. Now look at this. Verse 10, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So I have two outcomes here. I have the sorrow of uh, godly sorrow, which, and we're going to look at all the things that it produces in me, but godly sorrow is a product of me understanding that I have offended God and I am in contrition. I'm willing to repent. I'm going to give him control over my life and by faith accept his Son as my Lord and Savior, and through the power of Jesus Christ in my heart and by the grace of God, I can and will live a, a different life. But it's by God's grace, and it's by the power of Jesus Christ in me. That's what allows me the freedom to do right, where before I couldn't even do it if I chose. It's not a work. It's a ceasing of work. That's what godly sorrow produces. And then you have worldly sorrow. What does worldly sorrow produce? Very simple, death. That's what worldly sorrow produces. It produces death. In other words, there's nothing that is produced by trying to avoid punishment. Nothing. You might be able to avoid punishment for a time, but punishment always finds you. You can pick the sin, but you can never pick the payment. And that's just how simple it is. Let's look at what godly sorrow produces. Number one is found in verse 11. The Bible says, what carefulness it wrought in you. What carefulness. We're still in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, all the way down in verse 11. Godly sorrow produces a carefulness in you. Carefulness is a word that means an eager earnestness about business. It's care that you apply with diligence and forwardness. Carefulness. That's an interesting term. In other words, without God, 
without having accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, without the sorrow that leads to amendment to life, I, without Christ and my natural man, lack what the Bible defines as carefulness, which is eager earnestness about being diligent about my business. Carefulness. The Bible has several verses that it relates to this, and for time's sake, I'll just read those verses to you. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, you'll see this phrase, See then that ye walk circumspectly. Circumspectly is a word for diligently or cautiously. Um, it's a watchfulness to guard against danger. Circumspectly, circum, circumspectly, uh, it gives you the circumference. That's the that's where we get that word, that that preface to that word. When I was in the Marine Corps, when we would uh, be doing patrols, I was in a combined anti-armor team which just means I was in Humvees with machine guns and we could move a lot faster than regular infantry line companies. One of the things that we taught the guys in the back seat, so in a, in a Humvee, you got your driver, you got your vehicle commander who sits in the front passenger seat, and you got your gunner, and he's standing in between the four people in the vehicle, and he's either operating a 50 caliber machine gun, a 240 Golf machine gun, a Mark 19 machine gun, or maybe a tow missile system or a javelin or something. It's some form of a crew served weapon. And then behind the driver and behind the passenger, you have uh, behind the driver and behind the vehicle commander, you have two passengers. We called those our guardian angels. Anytime the vehicle stops moving or if it's moving at a slow enough pace for them to walk by it, they get out of the vehicle. And the first thing that they do before they get out is look out the window and develop visually a half moon size of space that they know is safe. Once they're out of the vehicle and in that safe space, they push out their field of view and we gain real estate circumspectly. We look to the left, we look to the right, we go out one degree. We look from the right, we look to the left, we go out one degree. We look from the left, we look to the right, and so on and so forth until I have purchased with caution the land that I'm standing on. There's nothing like an improvised explosive device or something like that there. That's that's the idea that circumspectly gives you. And so in Ephesians 5, 15 through 16, then it says, see then that you walk circumspectly. That's the word for carefulness that we, we read as a product of godly sorrow, a circumspect attitude towards my approach to life. I'm not just winging it. I'm being careful. I'm being cautious. I'm being purposeful about who and what I say and how I say it. And, and my life is to be a reflection of the gospel and mercy and doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ and not a reflection of my own desires. You also see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Walk in wisdom. Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom. Wisdom is that word. <clears throat> my grandfather used to tell me lots of different things, but one of the things he said is knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting tomatoes in a fruit salad. And that always stuck with me. That's, that's, the, that's the idea. And he says, Colossians 4, 5, walk in wisdom. In other words, you need to walk in that, that attribute, which is directly related to godly sorrow, that gives you not knowledge, but wisdom, which is the application of knowledge. 
How do I do that? Well, I have to be with God or I can't do it. I don't have it. Proverbs 4.23 says, keep thy heart with all diligence. Diligence is a word that means, it goes on to say, for out of it are the issues of life. Diligence is a word meaning to love earnestly, steady application of morals in business. It's constant effort to accomplish what is undertaken. It's it's astuity. It's, it's, it's application of you. And so what does godly sorrow work in a man? Well, number one, it works carefulness. Carefulness is that same word for a circumspect walking. It's a wisdom. It's a diligence that is in your life. It's how you move through life. Where do these qualities come from? Well, they come from a man who's asked God to forgive him. They come from a man who's repented and asked the Lord to save him. That's what the Bible says. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant. It goes on to say, Because your adversary the devil walks about seeking whom he may devour. I want to define those two words, sober and vigilant, because I think they're going to apply to our word carefulness. Sober is a word that means to abstain from, to be discreet. And vigilant means to keep awake, to watch. I don't know if I've ever explained to you the meaning behind the Gadsden flag. Gadsden flag was named after a gentleman named General Gadsden, and he put the snake on the flag, and that was being used in several flags of American history prior to the Gadsden flag. But the snake was on there with the words, Do not tread on me. And the snake was on there because a rattlesnake has no eyelids and thus is always vigilant. And it goes with his statement that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Well, that's exactly what godly sorrow can produce in a man. It can produce a diligence and a sobriety and a vigilance that is impossible to achieve in the natural man. You say, wait a minute, impossible? Folks, the Bible says, that the type of man I'm talking about, the type of woman I'm talking about, is a product of knowing what's most important. And what's most important is knowing that I've accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, that I have repented with godly sorrow. Everything that we're talking about now is a byproduct of godly sorrow. So if I'm walking in the Spirit as I have been commanded to be through the power and grace of my God, Jesus Christ living and abiding in me, I will, because the Bible's not a lying book and God is not a liar, I will be, uh, there will be a carefulness produced in me. I will be a, uh, a careful and circumspect person. There will be a wisdom that I have that the world doesn't seem to have or that you have that the world doesn't seem to have. There will be a a diligence and a vigilance and a sobriety and a constant effort to accomplish that which is undertaken with very particular purpose. These are all qualities that belong to a man that has had godly sorrow work its course in his life. Number two, the Bible says in verse 11, what clearing of yourself clearing. Clearing here is an interesting word. It's the word for apologia, 
In other words, it's the same. It's from the same word for a plea or an apology. It's an answer for self, a clearing of yourself, your name, a defense. It's a word meaning purifying or removing foul matter and encumbrances or obstructions. It's a making evident or luminous. It's a liberating of, uh, of the vindication of, of your cause. It's, it's a making clear. It's, it's clarity. It's an articulateness, if you will. It's a, uh, an understanding mentally, uh, the ability to decipher and compartmentalize and speak clearly and logically and purposefully about the value of Jesus Christ in your life. It's a clearing. You ever, we live in a world today that <clears throat> one of the main things that I hear so much, I've heard a term, I've heard it a lot more than I used to, the term is brain fog. Brain fog. So I started looking around at this term. It used to be a term that would define someone who's gone through something that has produced extreme physical exhaustion. But now... It's being used to describe thoughts and intents from people who are not physically exhausted at all. In fact, they're too fat and lazy to be physically exhausted. They're so comfortable and so given over to the luxuries of life that it has produced a fog in their mentality. God, help us. What's the opposite of this? A clearing an articulateness, a, a decipherable view on the issues of life. Where does that come from? It is a direct result of godly sorrow. It is not a human thing. Interesting. Acts chapter 22, 1 through 15 is the context, but what you'll see here is a statement that Paul makes. He says, Hear ye my defense which I make. He goes on to say, thou shalt be his witness unto all men. This is Paul giving his testimony, and he said, hear my defense, which I shall make. I talked to young men. These last three weeks, I've been at these youth camps, and one of them was young men only. And I was shocked how many times they'd come up to me and had some questions, or I'd get to spend a little time with one of them. And, and I would talk to them, and I would ask them point-blank questions to which their response was, I don't know. And I'd say, okay, well, think about it with me. Talk with me. Well, what do you want me to say? I don't have anything I want you to say. I want you to say something that you're deciphered through your mind. I want you to think. And they don't have it, folks. They don't have it. Why? Because they're foggy. Why? Because they're comfortable. They're so comfortable being outside for some of these guys. And this, this one camp, we just took a bunch of guys out into the side of a mountain and taught them how to live. One of these guys said to me, this is the longest I've ever been outside. And that was on day one. And I thought, man, you got four more days. What in the world do you do? You go from an air-conditioned building to an air-conditioned house to an entertainment venue to one entertainment system back home where I snack on infinite amount of sugary garbage in front of stuff that I pump into my mind that deludes my deciphering ability, what's happening? I'm not clear. I'm not clear. I feel bad physically, mentally, spiritually. I'm clouded with comfort and luxuries. 
when Paul was standing in front of a whole nation, he said, Hear ye my defense, which I make. And he offered a defense of the gospel that changed lives. Where is that? How do I get that? Well, godly sorrow. You must let the confrontation of the Bible humble you before God, an infinite, benevolent, loving God. And repent. Repent and allow him to control your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 through 27, it's another one of these. You'll see this phrase in verse 3. It says, Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. In verse 22, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Did you catch what he said there? I am made all things to all men that I might by that I might by all means save some. Before that, he said, my answer to them that do examine me is this. Do you have an answer for your life? Or are you just floating through a nine-to-five with no real passion? What drives you? What gives you clarity? What gives you purpose? Is it not sorrow before God? Have you allowed him to drive you to humility so that he can build you up as the example he created you to be by his grace and by the blood of Jesus Christ? Christ, our Lord and Savior, operating inside your life. A new creature, born again, the Bible says. Behold, all things are passed away. All things are become new. That's what God's desire is for us. The thought behind this is that the repentance of the Apostle Paul produced such a profound clearing of his inner man that he was able to articulate his thoughts with respect to the value of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the background of the person or the quote-unquote cultural restrictions of the individual he was speaking with. It didn't matter who he was talking to. He was so convinced, so thoroughly and deeply convinced of God's clearing ability in his own life that he would talk to anybody. And not only would he talk to them, he talked to them effectively. Effectively. 1 Peter 4, or excuse me, 1 Timothy 4, 12 through 16 gives us a context. You'll see this in verse 12. It says, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Verse 13 says, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Verse 14 says, neglect not the gift that is in thee. Verse 15 says, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. And verse 16 says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine, continue in them. Look at what this says here, folks. There's six things that we see which are defined as example-worthy. Word, conversation, charity, spirit, faith, purity. How am I going to be example-worthy with respect to the Word of God, the conversation of my life, the charity of my heart, the spirit of my soul, the faith of my eternal existence, and the purity of Jesus Christ in me? How am I going to be an example in any of these things if I've never been sorrowful before an almighty God? How? It's impossible. It's impossible. 
Verse 14 says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them. Verse 13 says, Give attendance to reading. Just a side note here, this is not by any means the purpose of the entire message, but when's the last time you read a book? I mean, we can all binge out on Netflix and Prime, but when's the last time you read a trilogy by someone who went through things that could teach you something? Just a thought for you. One of the things that helped me read a lot more, and I was, you know, there was a fellow by the name of Tom Rose when I was in high school who instilled in me a passion for reading, and it never left. But one of the things that helped me read it even more was I started keeping a list Every single book that I've read since I moved to the state of Utah it helps me stay on track, make sure that I'm not reading too much of one aspect of things. And I know one of my friends saw that list one time and they said, what in the world are you doing reading this stuff? And I said, well, what kind of person would I be if I only read things that I agreed with? You have to broaden your perspective not that any other person's perspective is true especially if it's if it's against the bible then it, then it's not true but are you so scared that the bible could be subjectified to something that would disprove it that you won't read it i'd say probably half of the things that i read i <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't loan the books out for sure that's 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 for sure you have to be able to see the whole picture. You have to see further than your marginalized shoebox of a of an echo chamber mind. You have to reach out a little bit. Why? Why do you have to do that? Because the world is full of people, and here's a little fact for you. Most of them aren't like you at all. So what are you going to do? You, are you just going to be effective to people who think like you, look like you, act like you, talk like you, grew up like you, are going the same place you're going? Or are you going to be, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. How big do you want to be? What kind of man do you want to be? Limited or usable? Well, you say, I want to be usable then pick up a book and turn off the TV and give attendance to the gift of God in your heart. If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, your life must be more profitable than comfortable. And that means you might want to do some things differently. All right? So number one, what is the product of a God-fearing man, a man who's got godly sorrow? Well, he's going to be a careful man. He's going to be an articulate man. He's going to have the ability to... to uh, to see things and articulate things. And uh, it goes on to say, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And then we move on. We move on here to um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Be ready always to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 28. The heart of the righteous studieth. Psalm 37.30, righteous speaketh wisdom. Romans 12.2, the uh, renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. This is all required. Romans 1.16-21, you see this. God revealed through the gospel of Christ by the power of God. And so these are the things that a man who fears the Lord, these are the things that a man who's got godly sorrow can produce. He can be careful. 
he can be articulate or have a clearing. And number three, it says in verse 11, yea, what indignation, what indignation. Indignation is a word. We're back in our text now in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11. We talked about um, uh, carefulness. We talked about clearing. And then you see this word, what indignation. The word indignation means to be greatly afflicted, to be sore displeased, extreme anger mingled with contempt, disgust or abhorrence, holy displeasure at oneself for sin. Holy, and what I mean by that is a righteous indignation towards your own self for sin. I tell folks, it's not that people who have accepted Christ can't sin, it's that they won't be comfortable in it. If you can be comfortable in what the Bible defines as sinful action, then that's not Christ living in your heart. That's you. The Bible says in Isaiah, the heart is desperately wicked, and who can know it? Romans chapter 7, verse 24 says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? That's also Paul talking. And he was speaking about his own flesh. He understood the value of him is Jesus Christ in him. And that if it wasn't for the new man, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, there's no value in him. He refers to himself as wretched. Wretched is a word that adds the element of time to a feeling of misery, a continuously miserable existence in the flesh, except for God and the salvation of God through his son, Jesus Christ, we, ladies and gentlemen, we are wretched beings. Wretched. You say, well, this is too much. I'm not going to accept this. Well, I'm sorry. I truly am. But it's not it's not up for debate. This is reality. You say, well, that's harsh. Well, <laughs> folks, I've, I've been all over the world. I've served in combat in four countries. Two of those I actually have recognition for. I fought pirates off the coast of Africa. I fought drug lords in Haiti. I fought the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And I fought Hajis and Iraq and insurgents and every other kind of place. And one of the things I learned is that we men are wretched things. Just a reality. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8, 1 through 8, you'll find this. No condemnation in Christ, the Bible says. The flesh cannot please God. We are at enmity. Our flesh is at enmity with Christ. Enmity is a word that means quality of being the opposite of a friend. It's opposition. It means malevolence or malevolence, which means having an evil, unfavorable disposition towards someone. Our flesh is at enmity with God, for we are wretched. O wretched man that I am. A person who is allowed or allows their heart to stand and sorrow before God, godly sorrow worketh repentance, the Bible says, a product of that sorrow is a righteous indignation for their own flesh. Folks, you have to understand, once you accept Christ as your Savior, my pastor, the, the one, the, my childhood pastor, a guy named Ron Tottenham, he told me there's no five minutes. There's 10 minutes in life that are unlike any other 10 minutes in the world. 
the last five minutes before you accept Christ, which is filled with fear and anxiety and, and, and wantonness, and then the, the, the first five minutes after you accept him, which is the most peaceful, wonderful thing, knowing that come hell or high water, he has forgiven me. I am his, and he is mine. And the more I grow in that salvation, the less the pleasures and comforts of this world and my flesh mean to me. That is what the Bible calls an indignation. An indignation. Interesting thought. Isaiah chapter 34, 1 through 8, you find that God revengeth with indignation. Jeremiah 10, 1 through 10, you'll find that the nations will not abide the indignation and wrath of God. Jeremiah 15, verse 7 says this, Thou hast filled me with indignation. Revelation 14, 6 through 11 talks about the cup of indignation, which is that which Jesus Christ took upon himself to save the sins of the world, poured out on those who reject Jesus Christ. The everlasting gospel must be accepted through repentance towards God and faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And without that, folks, we have nothing. We have nothing. And so what is the sorrow of God, godly sorrow? What does it produce? It produces a carefulness in me. It produces a clearing in me. It produces an indignation in me. And then verse 11 says, yea, what fear? Fear is a word for alarm or fright. Exceedingly affrighted. There's a lot of verses on this. I'm just going to give you a couple. I'm going to have to go to them here. I didn't write these down. Um, Psalm, uh, excuse me, Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7, look what it says here. If I can get there, I apologize. Proverbs 1 and verse 7, the Bible says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If I jump over to chapter 8 and verse 13, the Bible says this in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance, and the evil way, and the forward mouth do I hate. If you go to chapter 14 of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27, the Bible says here, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to depart from the snares of death. And chapter 19 and verse 23, the Bible says here, The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. And you find this all throughout the Bible. Folks, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the removal of your life from the evil of this world. The fear of the Lord is where it begins. And if I allow sorrow to drive me to my knees before the God of heaven, I will have a fear, which is a word for reverence of the Lord, that will guide and protect my life forever. If you're familiar with the story of Job, Job made a comment. Job 28 and verse 28, the Bible says this, And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil 
is understanding. I don't know how much more clear, clear that can be made. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To depart from evil, that is understanding. The thought behind this is that there simply is no wisdom which can only exist in the presence of the Lord without the Lord. So it is with godly sorrow that a repentant person, which leads to fear or true understanding and wisdom, is achieved. To put it another way, without repentance, excuse me, without repentance before the Lord Jesus Christ, the very best you can have is a void. There is no truth in void, only the lack thereof. Without repentance, the very best I can have is a void. And there's no truth in void, only the lack of truth. And so number one, we see that it produces a carefulness. Number two, a clearing. Number three, it produces in us an indignation for our natural flesh. Number four, a fear. And number five, it produces a vehement desire. Chapter 11 says, yea, what vehement desire. Vehement is a word for a longing, an earnest desire to dote upon intensely, to crave. And desire is exactly the same word. So it uses the same word twice, vehement desire. It's a longing. The spirit that humbles himself before the Lord and has godly sorrow will have a vehement desire, if for nothing else, than to see the Lord. Psalm 42, 1 through 2, you find the Bible says this, So panteth my soul after the water. This is, um, you also see the word thirsteth there. David talking about his desire to be in the house of God, to be around the word of God. Panteth is a word that means to beat with, with uh, perpetual nature, which, which is beyond what is normal. In other words, my heart, has it, it speeds up in anticipation of being with the Lord, a vehement desire. Most of us don't even really want to be in church, much less be with the Lord. Let me ask you a question. If I can't be in church, if I can't be in preaching, where the Lord makes himself manifest, why do you think you're going to like heaven? If I don't even like church, is is heaven just the antithesis of hell, and that's the only reason you want to go there? Or is it because the Lord is there, and you get to spend your life eternal with him? Interesting thought. Thirstus is the word that means... It's a painful sensation because of want, an eager desire after particular things, a vehement desire. I might have shared this example with you before, but when I got married for a long time, I just didn't want to be away from my wife. And when I had to go back to work around 1, 1 2 o'clock every day, 5 o'clock just couldn't not come soon enough. I just wanted to be around her. That's all I wanted. to. It didn't even matter what we did or where we went. I just wanted to be next to her, be around her, be within arm's reach of her. The Bible has a lot to say about the desire to be with the Lord. That desire is a product of a man or a woman who has been driven to their knees with humility and allowed the Bible to confront them and correct them. 
It's godly sorrow that produces a desire to be with our Father. It's interesting, interesting thought that if I don't want to be with him now, what makes me think that I want to be with him later? Psalm 63, 1 through 3, the Bible says this, God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is, to see thy power and thy glory. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary, because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. That coming from the mouth of a man who just wants to be with the Lord. If you look at Psalm chapter 84 and verse 2, Psalm, the 84th Psalm, verse 2, My soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh crieth out for the living God. Do you want to be with God? Or do you want to be with yourself? The man who wants to be with God is the man who has been brought to sorrow before God. If you go to Isaiah chapter 26, 8 through 9, Isaiah 26, 8 through 9, the Bible says, Yea, in the way of thy judgments, O Lord, have we waited for thee. The desire of our soul is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee. With my soul have I desired thee. In the night, yea, with my spirit within me will I seek thee early, for when thy judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. The inhabitants of the Lord will learn righteousness. It says, in the way of thy judgments have we waited for thee. Verse 9, with my soul have I desired thee. It goes on to say, I seek thee early. Do you seek him? Do you even want anything to do with him? Or is it just religion that you're appeasing? Is it just a religious dogma that you are appeasing? Or is the face of the Lord something you long for, thirsteth for, can't live without? Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. I'll read 23 through 24. The Bible says here, For I am in a strait betwixt two. Having a desire to part and to be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. Paul said, listen, I want to go home. I want to be with the Lord. It's better than here, he says, but, but for now, it's better that I stay here for you. For you. Paul said, I want to be with him. David, he said, Lord, I want to go home. The Bible's full of men who wanted to see their father. Paul said, but it's not time yet. And so because the Lord wills it, and for you, I will stay, and I'll preach. But his desire was for the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 6 through 8, you'll see this phrase, love his appearing. Exodus 33, 8-23, there's a wonderful story there, but you'll see right in the middle of that story, you'll see a man say, show me, show me your face, show me, show me. Matthew 26, 36-45, 
uh, you'll you'll see a story that references this phrase, Jesus and his desire for the Father. Jesus was always wanting to be at home again with his Father. That was one of the biggest reasons that Jesus was driven to desperation in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew the moment he took the dreads, the dregs of the cup of sin upon himself, without having sinned but taking the responsibility for sin that God in heaven would have to reject him. And when Jesus Christ was on the cross, we see it throughout all four Gospels, he says, Lama, 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 or Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The answer to that question is because Jesus took my sin upon himself and had to pay for me. And God is righteous and cannot be a part of sin. And so he turned his back on his son because he loved me and he loved you. And there's a vehement desire that that produces in me to see his face. Do you want to be with him? Do you want to see him? Do you want to be around him? Do you want to be around his word where his word is preached? Or is he just a check mark on your schedule? Who is he to you? The next thing we see is in all, also in verse 11, it says, Yea, what zeal? 2 Corinthians, uh, back, back to our text here, 2 second, second Corinthians chapter, I'm sorry, <clears throat> I just got rid of my, my page here. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 11, says, Yea, what zeal? Zeal is a word for heat, to be hot, to be fervent or fervored. It's a, it's a favorable sense. Um, and an unfavorable, jealousy is a word that plays into this, kind of like the jealousy of a husband. Fervent is a word that means very hot, burning, ardent excitement with pious adore. Adore meaning um, heat in a literal sense, warmth uh, and friction. Two things come together and produce heat. It's applied passions and affections. In other words, those people who have allowed the word of God to drive them to sorrow before the Lord, to have godly sorrow, it produces a zeal in them. It produces a passion in them. It produces a power in them to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, to be a witness for his cause in life, not to live life on their terms, but on the terms of the Lord, clearly laid out in the Bible. You see this in Revelation 3, 15 through 22. Here we see the words together again, zeal and repent, and God's desire for us to be hot for him, to be fervent, to be on fire for him. And you see those words com uh, combined, zeal and repentance. Folks, when you repent, it produces inside of you a desire to let other people know how great and magnificent the saving power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14 talks about the fact that we should be zealous unto good works. How do I get there? How do I become passionate about that which is good? Not passionate about stupidity and sinfulness and bad, but passionate about that which is good. How do I get there? I have to be a man driven to godly sorrow which led to repentance not to be repented of. Psalm 69 and verse 9 says, For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. This is David talking, and he wanted to be in the house of God so badly, and he couldn't get there. He was on the run. He'd been anointed king, but there was another king named Saul who was trying to kill him, and he was on the run, him and his mighty men, who he had attracted over the course of his voyages, 
And he made that comment, the zeal, the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. He wanted to be where the Lord was. That's all he could think about. It was all that was motivating him. Do you want to be where the Lord is? Or do you want to be where Netflix and Prime Video and Sunday football and all the sports things that we have attributed ourselves to? Where do you want to be? You want to be with you? Or do you want to be with the Lord? The Bible says a person who has godly sorrow has a zeal to be where the Lord is. John chapter 2, John chapter 2, 14 through 17, the Bible says here, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world... This is actually chapter 3, but I'll keep reading. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is the story of salvation. We have pictures of it in the Old Testament, but if I go back to chapter 2, 14 through 17, you see what produces that salvation. It's zeal. The Bible says here, and found, John 2, uh, 14 through 17, I'm actually going to start in verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there many days, and the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, the changers of money, sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overthrew the tables." And he said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, make not my father's house an house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Folks, one of the things that I've had to learn about being a pastor is the zeal and the vision that the Lord's had given me. It drives me sometimes absolutely crazy. Just, I want... I want to move forward. I, I want to. I, I just sometimes I go up and into the Wasatch Mountains and I looked out over the valley of Salt Lake City and I think this is an impossible job. Look at this. At night, the valley is lit up, and you look down over the whole valley and you think, "What in the world am I doing here? This is where do I even start?" And then the Lord through passion and zeal, says, son, start anywhere. I'll be with you. And I just, this is what godly sorrow produces in the heart of a person, a zeal to be a witness for the cause of Christ, zeal to be in the house of God. And then we look at the next thing in verse 11. It says, yea, what revenge? Yea, what revenge? Revenge is a word for retribution or vindication and and, and punishment. Vindication is a word meaning uh, the defense of anything or the justification against denial or censorship, the act of supporting by proof or legal process. Retribution, uh, revenge. Retribution is a word attached to that. It means repayment or compensation or or or, or the paying it forward, forward in return. It's it's a it's it's the distribution of 
of rewards and punishments and general judgment. And so the person who has godly sorrow has a revenge produced within themselves, but it's not a revenge like you're thinking. It's not vengefulness towards the outside world. First, uh, Isaiah chapter 59, 16 through 17 says this, He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Clothing is garment and cloak is the same thing, a covering. The thought behind this is that the revenge produced inside a saved individual is the revenge of God against the effects of sin. Or to put it another way, it is the payment of God against the cost of sin. It is God's victory through the life of Jesus Christ over the separating effect of that sin has over man. In that, it creates a gulf between man and God. God's revenge bridged the great gulf and submitted a payment through the life of Jesus Christ, which not only satisfied the requirement, but destroyed it. The victory of God, which destroyed sin inside the heart of a saved man. It produced, Folks, godly sorrow produces a vengefulness inside you towards the sin that separated you from God. Sometimes we flirt around with these little sins, we quote-unquote little, They're just little things. God would understand. There might be setting sin, but the person who's truly been driven to their knees before God, the person who's truly been uh, had had a a godly sorrow, which produced a repentance that cannot be repented of, that person doesn't play around with sin, and if they do, they immediately repent because that sin, that 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 separating agent, the new man has a vengefulness for it. I tell folks here at Wasatch Front Baptist Church all the time, the most miserable people I've ever met in my life are the people who've truly accepted Christ and are trying to not live that way. Just can't be done. Colossians 2, 9 through 15 says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. I love that verse. He spoiled, Jesus Christ spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them. He beat them. And when I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, the new man inside me produces a vengeance for sin that causes me to not be so accepting as perhaps I once was. Ephesians 2, 15 through 16 says he abolished it. Romans 12, 19 talks about the fact that the Lord says, vengeance is mine, and he sets it against those who commit those sins or against those who have rejected the payment of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you go to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30, we see a verse here that will give some light to this subject. The Bible says here, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. What does godly sorrow produce inside the heart of a man? It produces a vengeance towards sin, his own sin first. Paul said that. He said, I die daily. He repented daily. There's so many stories of this throughout the Bible. I might as well read you one more. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 1, and let's start in verse 3. And I'll read down through verse 10. It says, We are bound to thank God always. Excuse me. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing which God, look what it says here, with God, it's a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you that are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. He said, listen, God will have his vengeance towards sin. That doesn't mean that you have to be a part of it. God allowed Jesus Christ to pay your sin debt. Vengeance towards sin is coming, but sin by Christ has been paid for, and you as the sinner can be forgiven. How? Godly sorrow that leads to an amendment of life. Not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow. So let's take a brief review, and then we'll end it. Godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, or legal repentance versus real repentance. Real repentance produces, number one, a carefulness. Number two, a clearing. Number three, real repentance produces an indignation inside you toward the old man. Number four, it produces a fear, a fear which the Bible says is the beginning of all wisdom. Number five, it produces a vehement desire. Do you desire to be with God? Do you desire to be around where the word of God is being preached, where doctrine is being manifested by God himself through preaching? Do you desire it? Or would you rather be somewhere else? And then it says, number six, a zeal. A zeal. Do you have a zeal to be in the house of God? And then number seven, a revenge. Do you hate sin as God hates sin? Let's look at the second point. That's all the first point. The second point is very brief. What does worldly sorrow work in a man? If we go back to our text... Back to our text, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 10. Look what it says. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. For all the things that the godly sorrow produces, there's only one thing that worldly sorrow, there's only one thing that trying to avoid payment produces, death. That's it bunch of verses here. Proverbs 17.22 talks about the broken spirit drieth the bones. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. James 1.15 talks about sin, and it says, Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 16.25 says the exact same thing. Ezekiel 18 verse 4 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Ezekiel 18.20 says the same thing. Revelation 22.8 says, This is the second death. Romans 6.16 says that sin is unto death. We see this all throughout the scripture. What does godly sorrow produce? Death. Death. Very simple. For everything that God, or excuse me, worldly sorrow produces death. For everything that godly sorrow produced, worldly sorrow produces death. Closing thought is just four verses from Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be all done. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which is at first begun to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. There's no escape from this truth. But then again, why would you ever want to escape the godly sorrow which leads to repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is not to be repented of? Hebrews 2.1, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to these things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Folks, what type of sorrow do you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ? It is a sorrow, is it a sorrow of convenience? Where you are understanding that you got caught and you'll try to do it better next time insofar that you try not to get caught. That's the sorrow of the world. That's the sorrow that uh, is legal repentance. That's the sorrow that doesn't produce an amendment to life. That's the sorrow that leads to death. Or do you have godly sorrow, the type of sorrow that produces those seven qualities inside of a man? Does it produce in you carefulness? Does it produce in you a clearing? Does it produce in you an indignation for sin and a fear for God? And number five, a desire, a vehement desire to be in the house of God, does it produce for you a zeal to be around the word of God and revenge toward the old nature? Or are you just punching a time clock, waiting for it all to come to a screeching halt? If you have any questions, folks, I'd love for you to reach out to me. My office line is at wasatchfrontbaptistchurch.com. That's W-A-S-A-T-C-H. That's the mountain range here, W-A-S-A-T-C-H front, baptistchurch.com. The direct contact number to my church office is also on that website. If the Lord has reached in and talked to you, I praise his name for it. That's the purpose of these things. If you have any questions that are generated by this, I will do my best to get back to you. I've, I've gotten back to everybody that has reached out so far, and that is my intention. 
Thank you so much for being with us. I pray that these things sink into our hearts and minds, that we wouldn't just put them aside as words said, but that we would let them change how and who we are, how we operate, what we think. I'm going to pray and we'll be all done. Father, thank you so much for everything you've done, and I pray that you would allow these words to resonate with us in a very real and life-altering way. We leave these things in your hands, and we ask that you would bless us and give us strength for the endeavors of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, I love you. I'll talk to you next time. God bless.